I hope that got you into the, the heart of the, the lame beggar we're about to encounter and the, the great thing that happened to him through God's people. Let me read you how Luke records the story. Now Peter and John, this is Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he said he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what happened to him. What an amazing, wonderful, wondrous story. A story that I believe we can learn much from today. A story that I believe illustrates at least three important characteristics or, or marks of this early church. Three characteristics that enabled and empowered them to engage in their mission. The mission given to them by Jesus Christ. These are three marks, as the title of the sermon is, of a missional church. And I'm going to add to that. Three marks of a missional church and three marks of a missionary. And today I, I want us to see that these marks are critical. They're critical for any person or any church that wants to engage in the mission of Jesus Christ, to be His witnesses. So I want to challenge and encourage us to embrace and allow the Lord to develop these traits, these characteristics, these marks in our lives, that we at Bridges Church might become a a truly missional church. Now today is, is a bittersweet day for us. We're commissioning, we're sending Amy Alexander We're sending her on a mission to engage a very different part of the world, a part we're not that familiar with, a part of the world that is in desperate need for the Lord Jesus Christ. So today, along with us, along with the church here at Bridges, which Amy's a part of, I want to specifically challenge and encourage Amy to embrace and allow the the Lord to develop these, these marks, these characteristics in her life. They're essential for any missional church or any missionary. And it's not that Amy doesn't have these. She does. As Tom pointed out, she is, a, a, she is an inspiration to me and, and to us, I believe. It's that Amy is that Amy's going into a very difficult and a very challenging place. And she'll need to continually, day by day, trust in the Lord. And, and so we, and we will, we're going to pray for Amy at the end of this message. We need to come around her and encourage her in these things and and others that the Lord will continue to develop those in her life. So, let's look at these three marks that Peter and John demonstrate here in Acts chapter 3. So the first mark of a missional church 
or a missionary is a care for people. A care for people. We see Peter and John demonstrate that. They, they care for people around them. They're walking to the temple. They're just heading to the temple. This is a normal practice, normal part of their life. Now at the temple, there's a guy. And this guy has been lame since he was born. He couldn't walk. He's never walked. A man who was one of the neediest people in all of that culture, that society. To survive, he had to beg for alms. Alms is just another word for charity. He had to beg that people would give him coins, money. He'd been probably rejected by most of his society. In that day, people with sicknesses and diseases, it was often attributed to the fact that some sin in their life or sin in the life of their family. So Peter and John, they come upon this guy. He sees them. And like he does with everyone that's passing by, he asks them for alms, for charity. Do you have something for me? Now this is a common scene at, at the temple, at the temple gate, at the gate beautiful. This is where the needy folks would hang out. This is where someone, I don't know, volunteers, people from their family would carry them in every day and they would just be there all day. People would come to the temple where God is watching And they'd want God to see them do a a good deed, and so that's where they would give their alms, give their charity to those in need there. Now when they see this guy, Peter and John have three basic options. They can give him a few coins, and they said they didn't have any, but you know, they could have went and got some. They could have given him a few coins, maybe make themselves feel a little better about who they were. Okay, I helped out this lame guy. God saw it. I get maybe a reward from God. They can pass him by saying, "Uh, sorry, not today, lame guy. Not for you today. Or they can demonstrate true care and engage with him. And that's what they do. Verse 4, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and they said, look at us. They looked at him, they said, look at us. That word gaze is very powerful. It means to look intently upon to set your eyes upon, to engage with your eyes. The same phrase is used in Acts chapter 1, if you remember. When Jesus ascended into heaven, Luke writes that that the disciples were gazing intently. I mean, think about that. Jesus has ascended, and they're gazing intently. They can't take their eyes off of heaven. This is the same word. Luke wants us to understand that Peter and John are engaging this guy. They truly care for this guy and his situation. They're concerned enough to actually see him. Oftentimes we don't, do we? We just walk by people in need. There's emotion there. They're entering into his pain. They not only gaze at him, but they tell him, look at us. We're here. We care about you. And then verse 5 says, and he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. So the guy's expecting to get something from Peter and John. They've engaged him, and he's waiting for his cash, something. But instead, he gets radical care. In verse 6, Peter says, I have no silver, no gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. And he doesn't say the words. He reached out, and he took him by the right hand and raised him up. 
and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Peter reaches down and touches this man, this man that was an outcast by society. He reaches down and he helps him up. And the lame walked. And leaping, verse 8 says, up he stood. He didn't, wasn't like uh, this, uh, you know, slow motion sort of healing. When the Holy Spirit comes and does healing, you know it. It's not a, it's not, oh, did, the, did I get healed or not? Immediately, leaping, he stood and began to walk. Gave, renewed his muscle tone in his legs. And, they, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. So he goes along with them. They all go in the temple together, and he's walking and leaping and praising God. Peter and John demonstrate true care and concern for this needy man. A concern that led them to engage, him, engage with him and to meet his needs. And this one man's life is now transformed, changed forever. Now what does this say to us? Do we, first of all, even see the needs of the people, of the individuals around us? And when we do see them, do we care enough to engage with them? We live in a culture where we can put in our our headphones, we can turn on our TVs, we can busy our lives, fill our lives with all kinds of things, and never lift a finger to meaningfully engage a person in need around us. We can say we want everyone to be saved. We want everyone to be saved. We can get excited about crusades and and big altar calls. But are we willing to truly care for an individual? I want us to see something in the context here. Remember, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached his first sermon, how many people were saved? 3,000. Thanks for listening, Gary. (laughs) Before that day, there were how many believers? About? Gary's trying to beat you guys. Come on, we we got a quiz going here. And then, so now there are how many believers? 3,120. All right, approximately. Now that's exciting church growth, isn't it? 3,000 people. When everyone who actually is part of Bridges Church actually comes on a Sunday morning, we are close to that 120. Now imagine if one day 3,000 people were added to Bridges. That'd be awesome. All I know is that I'd need a raise really quickly. <laughs> because there'd be a lot more work to do, right? I would have to cancel my vacations. We might have to go to a, we might even have to go to a second service. Probably everyone would fit in here, maybe even a third service. So the early church is experiencing this phenomenal growth. And Peter, as the leader, had certainly gotten a lot of responsibilities, don't you think? But right after this major explosion in chapter 2, Luke follows it with Peter and John reaching out to this one guy. Where did they find the time? And why did they bother? They had 3,000 new converts to deal with. Yet they take the time to focus their needs on one lame beggar. And I want us to see something, a truth here. That Peter and John understood, that I believe the early church knew. The truth we need to remember. Those that God uses to reach the crowd are those who care about the one. Those that God uses to reach the crowd 
are those who care about the one, the individual. And you know who they learn this from? Jesus. Man, I don't know why I bother here. You guys know it, all the stuff. They learned it from their master. They learned it from Jesus. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had what on them? Compassion. He had compassion on them as individuals. And because of that, he cared enough to heal their individual sicknesses and their individual diseases. And the compassion and care and concern of Jesus was passed on to his disciples. And it didn't stop with them. It continued into the early church, even beyond the book of Acts. History tells us that in, the, in first century Rome, the most common form of birth control was infanticide. They didn't do abortion. They would have the child, and then they would throw the child away. They would put it on a trash heap, especially if it was a girl. They wouldn't kill the child, that was bad, but they would put it on the, the, the trash pile and let it die. And history says that, that Christians were known to go to these trash heaps and rescue these infants, these babies that nobody wanted. They cared for the least in their society. And I can't help but think of our sister Amy and the work she's done and the work she'll continue to do as she's sent out saving the lives of infants through training, through midwifery, through being there. She's an inspiration for us of what it means to care for people in such a way that it causes you to engage with them. It causes you to gaze upon them, to sacrifice for them. And Amy, if I can, my glasses are on, I think you're still there. I would just encourage you encourage you as an encouragement to us, but encourage you specifically to allow the Lord to grow you in this area, this care for people, that you would care for the people of Central Asia, to care for the babies, to care for the mothers, those who are greeting you with smiling faces, but to allow the Lord to give you a a supernatural ability to care for those who, who won't give you a smiling face, those who might hate you, that might despise you, that might reject you. Ask the Lord to give you a care for them. And church, we need to demonstrate our care for Amy by praying for her in this area. Can you imagine being in a place where people look down on you all the time? Can you imagine then developing a care for those same people? That's the situation Amy's going into. It'll be difficult, and she'll need our prayers to sustain her. She'll need the power of God, the power of the Spirit, to truly care for the people she'll be working with and beyond. So the first mark of a missional church, of a missionary, is that they care for people. The second mark is, is a confidence in Christ. A confidence in Christ. Look at verse 6 again. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold. I, I have no confidence in those things anyway. But what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise and walk. I could give you silver and gold, but you would just need to be back here tomorrow. 
Peter engaged and healed this lame man in the name of Jesus Christ. His confidence was clearly in Christ alone. It would be Christ that would heal this man. The power of Christ flowing through his apostle, Peter. Peter understood that he was merely a conduit of Jesus Christ, of Jesus' work. In, in Peter's sermon that follows this, this healing, in Acts 3.16 he says, And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. It's by faith, by confidence in his name. We'll come across this, this phrase in the name of Jesus over and over again in the New Testament. The early church knew that Jesus had saved them. He had given them the Holy Spirit. He had transformed their lives. So they cared and loved and engaged the world confidently in His name. Now, His name, Jesus Christ, or Jesus Christ of Nazareth, were not, wasn't magic words. They're just not magic words. We'll see that when we get to Acts chapter 19. Write that down if you want to read that story about the seven sons of Sceva. Say that seven times fast. Seven sons of Sceva. When they try to cast out some demons, and they, and they try to cast out the demons in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. They didn't know Jesus. They just heard this Paul guy, and the results for them were not pretty. You can read that. So it's not confidence in these words. They're not magic words, Jesus Christ. The name of Christ represents who Christ is. So to have confidence in His name is to have confidence in Him, the person of Jesus Christ. They knew Him. They knew He was alive. They knew He was seated at the right hand of the Father. They knew He had ascended into heaven. They knew He had given them, poured out upon them on the day of Pentecost, the power of the Holy Spirit. They knew He was alive and working in and through them. Therefore, they placed their confidence in Him. And this enabled them to do extraordinary things in His name. And we can have that same confidence in that same name, Jesus Christ, if you know Him today. We must today have confidence in who He is because Jesus Christ is still seated at the right hand of the Father. He still pours out His Holy Spirit on His people. He still works in and through our lives we are His hands and His feet in this world. And it's time that we confidently stand up and realize that Jesus wants to live through us, through His church. And this morning I would say to my sister Amy, as you're sent out, as you face challenges, as you face difficulties, as you put your very life at risk, I would say never forget that your confidence is in Christ. That you stand in His power. As you face ridicule, as you face persecution, never forget that it's Christ that is in work, at work in you. That as you care for the people of Central Asia, that you care for them in the name of Jesus Christ. And He will provide everything that you need. 
He will provide you with the power, the ability, the patience, the love, the mercy, the grace, and the joy that you'll need to engage the people that He's sending you to, that we're sending you to. Ultimately, it's Jesus that's sending you, but, but we get to take part, of, part in that as a church. What a joy that is. And Amy needs our support in this. She needs our prayers. We need to pray that she will, on a daily basis, remain confident in her Lord Jesus Christ. That she will wake every morning and go to bed every evening knowing that Jesus Christ is there to sustain her every moment. That He's there to work in and through her. That she, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of struggles, even in the midst of ridicule, will demonstrate love and care in the name of Jesus Christ. We have an assignment to pray for her in these things, church. So the second mark of a missional church and a missionary is confidence in Christ. And the final mark we'll look at today is a commitment to the gospel. A commitment to the gospel. The gospel hope we know, is the good news of who Jesus Christ is who, and what Jesus Christ has done. That He's opening His arms. He's, he's bridged the gap between sinful man and holy God. The early church was confident in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were committed to proclaiming the good news of His name. We see that clearly in Acts chapter 3. Because of their care for this man... And because of their confidence in Christ, a miracle takes place. The lame man walks. And the man's first response was to enter in the temple, to go in the temple with them, leaping and and praising God. And we find his second response in verse 11, or during the same time. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So he's clinging to Peter. Peter and John, these guys, I want to hang with them. The man clung to them, and a, and a crowd rushed to hear what... There's a commotion going on, and a crowd rushes to hear what's going on. They wanted to see this miracle. Apparently, the crowd was in awe of Peter and John, because we read in verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or, or why do you stare at us? as though by our power or piety we've made this him walk. Peter says, why are you focusing on us? It's not us who made the lame walk. Then in Acts 3.13, Peter says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. It was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God, of, the God that you claim to worship here in this temple, Peter says. And he did it. He's the one that healed this man, and he did it. Why? To glorify his servant, his son, Jesus Christ. You know Jesus, don't you? He's the one you delivered over to Pilate for crucifixion. You remember that? What Peter and John do is they stand up, And they don't point to themselves. They point to God. God, through using Peter and John to heal this man, 
has attested to their authority. We talked about this. He said, okay, you've done the mir- I've done the miracle to you. Now it's your turn to speak some words of authority to this crowd. And they used that authority, not for their own glory. They used that authority to point to Jesus. God th- did this, they say, through, through us for the glory of His Son. Didn't they begin to glorify the Son by proclaiming the Gospel? Like He did in chapter 2 when the crowd gathered after Pentecost. Remember the commotion at Pentecost? The crowd comes and, and Peter preached his first sermon. Peter in his second sermon begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And don't forget he's talking to a group of Jews. Many of whom were around when Jesus was crucified. Some of whom probably chanted, crucify him, crucify him. And Peter tells them about who Jesus is. Verse 14, but, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Jesus is the holy and righteous one. Jesus is the author of life. And Peter says, you killed him. That wasn't the end. Not the end of the story. Look, guys, God raised him from the dead. Then in verse 19, Peter says, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. If you repent of your sins, if you turn from your, from your sin and turn to Christ, then your sins will be blotted out. Amen? Amen. They will be forgiven forever. This is the gospel that Peter and the early church were committed to proclaiming. And this is the gospel that we have to continue. It hasn't changed. Same gospel. It's different messengers. We have to be those messengers. And we have to commit to that gospel. Commit to its proclamation. Now, two things happened after Peter's second sermon. Probably more things happened, but I'm pointing out two. We find in the things that happened in chapter 4. First, Peter and John were arrested by the Jewish religious leaders. Luke writes in Acts 4.2 that the religious leaders were greatly annoyed. Understatement. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people, not that Peter and John were teaching the people, and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They didn't like the resurrection at all. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So the first thing that happened was that they were arrested in in Scripture order. The second thing that happened, maybe happened before it, but it's recorded after it. So they're they're put in prison and they spend a night in jail and they're released the next day. Now the second thing in verse 4, but many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. There's some more church growth for you. 5,000 men, plus women, children. Peter and John cared enough to engage a lame beggar. With confidence in Christ, they healed him. A crowd gathers, and they proclaim the gospel. Then they're arrested. Because of their commitment, Peter and John, because of the commitment Peter and John had to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, 5,000 plus people were saved. But Peter and John were 
arrested. Now, if we could ask them, guys, was it worth it? What do you think they'd say? Of course, no doubt. A night in jail, 5,000 souls, no problem. What a trade-off. But later, both Peter and John and others would face much more difficult persecution for the sake of the gospel. In Acts chapter 5, all the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel. They were freed by an angel. That was a cool story. We'll get to that. And they go and what do they do? They preach the gospel again. And they're arrested again. And this time they're beaten and then released. Was it worth it? Apparently they thought so. Verse 41 of Acts chapter 5. Then they left the presence of the council that had just beaten them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The name again, the name of Jesus Christ. The apostles, the early church, believed that proclaiming the gospel was worth prison and beating and even death. Chapter 7 of Acts, we read of Stephen, the first person to give his life for the gospel. And church history says that all the apostles, except John, he got boiled in some oil, they say, but he didn't die. But the rest of the apostles and many other first century Believers gave their lives for proclaiming the gospel. And it didn't stop in the first century. It didn't stop there. Many believers throughout history have done the same, have given their lives that the gospel of Jesus Christ might go forth. So the question is, Tom raised it earlier. We're going to talk about it again. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth your your life? Whether that's a life of sacrificial service, a lifelong, a long life of sacrificial service, or actually giving up your life. Is it worth it for the sake of the gospel? I think the early church would respond with a resounding, yes, it's worth it. Why is it worth it? Acts chapter 4, verse 12, speaking of Jesus Christ to those who arrested him, Peter says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation only comes through the name of Jesus Christ. It's not a magic name. Salvation only comes through knowing Jesus Christ. Only through knowing and trusting who He is and what He's done for you. what saves you. And what are you saved from? You're saved from your sin. You're saved from eternal separation from God. You're saved from hell itself. And and the early church and many throughout history have said, if proclaiming the gospel means I'm arrested, I'm imprisoned, I'm beaten, I'm killed, then so be it. Because through the power of the Holy Spirit, I care for people. My confidence is in Christ, and I'm committed to the gospel. Now, that's well and good for Peter and the early church. That's 2,000 years ago. But what about us? What about 21st century Riverside, California? Is the gospel worth our lives? Is Is it even worth our time? Is it worth risking Risking what? Embarrassment? Risking our job? 
risking a, a relationship. I am saddened by how little the gospel is really worth to most of us. And I'm talking about us. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about me. How little we truly care for the people around us. People who, without the gospel of Jesus Christ, are destined to an eternal separation from God. How little confidence we have in Christ to empower us to proclaim the gospel. How afraid we are to proclaim the only message that has the power to save. And all I can say for myself and for others is is we need to seek God. We need to repent. We need to pray. We need to come to Him. We need to ask God to work in us that we might commit ourselves to the gospel. We have to decide that the gospel is worth it. And right here today, we have a a living inspiration. An amazing example of someone who's truly committed to the gospel. Amy's leaving safe, relatively safe, Riverside, and going to a place where her life will be in much more danger, risk. Why? For the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, that babies might live, but ultimately that there might be people from Central Asia praising God for all eternity. Amy, with her words and her actions, is proclaiming that the gospel of Jesus Christ is worth her life. Whether that means a a short, given-up life for the gospel of Christ, or a long life of service, of caring for people, of putting her confidence in Christ, of committing herself to the proclamation of the gospel, in either case, Amy's decided rightly that the gospel is worth it. And just so we're clear, the gospel is not just worth Amy's life. It's worth all of our lives. Each and every one of us must give our lives for the sake of the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian. We have to open our hands and our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, my life is yours. Take it. Use it for the gospel. Use it for your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Use it that He might be glorified and honored among the nations. Whether that means a long life of service in Riverside or someplace else, or a short life given up for the gospel, it's worth it. No matter who you are. Amen? Amen. That's three marks of a missional church and three marks of a true missionary. Caring for people. Putting your confidence in Christ and a commitment to the gospel. And and I thank God for Amy and that she is an example of that to us. And I pray, as as Tom um, talked about this morning, that that would be a, a prophetic word to us. And from us sending out Amy, that would cause us as a church to become more committed the gospel, and committed to the nations, and committed specifically today and beyond to Amy and the mission she'll be undertaking. I'd just like to 
speak for our congregation and say publicly to Amy, thank you. Thank you for your care for people, your confidence in Christ, and your commitment to the gospel. You're truly an inspiration to me, to us. And I would say to us, we're going to pray for Amy right now. But she'll need our prayers throughout her time of service. I believe, I believe with all my heart that her, that her ministry is dependent on the prayers of God's people. And so now, wherever you're taking notes or writing down or your PDA or your whatever, personal, we don't say that anymore, your iPad, your phone, whatever, your smartphone, you know, jot down a note, you know, I'm going to pray for Amy. It's not a one-time prayer that we're going to give Amy. It's a beginning. It's a, it's a symbol, a symbol of a commitment of prayer for Amy. And so I'd like to just ask Amy if you would do me a favor and, well, maybe all of us could rise. And Amy would come out into the middle out there.